colorful and cliche and whatever. Like I, I'm making what I feel like I want to make, whether that's it's moving and it's motivating to me and I'm just going to make it. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Hilsenbrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. This episode of Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. Speedball is thrilled to announce that they are extending their range of the beloved oil-based block printing ink. Partnering with Hello Print Friend host Ronaldo Hill Zambrano to give the line a fresh new look, they have launched 10 rich color options in convenient 8-ounce cans. The ink is formulated to be permanent, waterproof, and archival, but provides easy cleanup with vegetable oil. Available now for purchase through Speedball's website. My guest this week is Julia Lucy. We talk about the limitations and creative solutions of being a parental caregiver and artist, her love of detail and working slowly, the complex feelings of making work that sells after graduate school, and what it means to decolonize your garden. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to rewild yourself with Julia Lucy. Hi, Julia. How's it going? Great. Thank you. So happy to be here. I'm really happy that you're here too and that we're getting a chance to talk and it's perfect timing because as I mentioned, I got to see your work in person at Print Austin just a couple weeks ago. So your wonderful prints and mixed media compositions are fresh in my mind and I really think that we're going to be able to have a, a great chat about working in printmaking in unique ways and the environment and animals and kind of all my favorite topics. So I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into all that, would you let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? For sure. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area in a little town called Fairfax, which I guess it's Famous for being where mountain biking was invented. So it's a very bikey town, very green and outdoorsy. I make etchings of, I guess, the local flora and fauna. But instead of kind of doing traditional editions of my etchings, I cut them up and make collages and kind of rebuild new landscapes with them. Very cool. And then where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? I... Pretty lucky. I, I grew up on the East Coast. We we kind of moved around a lot, but I definitely had a lot of art in my life early on. My parents divorced when I was like six, but my maternal grandparents lived in the Yorkville neighborhood of Manhattan. So walkable to like the Met. And mm. I guess most of my memories actually are of the ancient playground, hanging out with them. But And my grandmother actually for a time was the membership director of the Jewish Museum. She was also a writer. She wrote children's books, but art was a very big part of her life. And so by default, I mostly remember complaining about the long walks, but we went to a lot of museums (laughs) and things like that. So we went to museums. She had art on her walls. My mother, which is kind of funny, is I didn't realize it until after I had gone to art school, but my mother actually had a lot of prints in the house. So she also, she liked art. So 
what's kind of funny is I ended up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And now, and then when I went home, she was in Boston at the time, I went into the apartment and I was looking and all of the work was actually from like Crown Point Press and Magnolia Editions. And so (laughs) I was like, oh, you have etchings and lithographs. And I didn't even realize this growing up. And they're all where I ended up from places where I ended up. So I thought that was kind of a funny coincidence. Yeah, I feel like- Maybe not a coincidence. (laughs) Totally, totally. Yeah, you never know what gets in there subconsciously. Yeah. I feel like that that generation really understood collecting prints in such a more mm, more prominent way, or 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 maybe more people understood collecting prints in yeah. a few generations before us. And I think a few people have that experience of realizing what they saw, for instance, on their grandparents' walls, yeah, was indeed prints and and prints, as you say, from these really well-known and well-respected publishing houses. So, and then what I always have, what always happens to me too, is whenever I'm watching an old movie, I don't know if this happens to you, but I'm always like, print, 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 print. And you'll see like a Piranesi is someone in Alfred Hitchcock is moving from the drawing room to the dining room in their gown. And I think that prints on walls wasn't as unusual as it is now. Right. You know, very recently in our history. Uh-huh. It's like it's not just coming out of a flat file. <laughs> yeah, there. exactly. Yes. Yeah. And then so when you were going to, as you say, like the, the Met and having this very, sounds like kind of cosmopolitan experience through your maternal grandparents, did you have a sense that this was something that people could do for a living or something that you maybe wanted to do for a living was create these sort of objects? You know, it's funny because as much as I was exposed to art and saw it and saw my, my mom buying prints and, and, you know, my grandparents having art and art being a big part of their life, I, I didn't. And I, I ended up in art school. I first went to a liberal arts college, Whitman College in Washington State, and then I transferred to the San Francisco Art Institute. And, and even after going to art school, I feel like I, and I think things are starting to change in art schools, but I feel like the idea, it's like you go to art school and then it's like, but you can you really have a career in art? Like it was right. just, I, I mean, and I went straight from art school into getting a teaching credential and became a special education teacher. And oh wow. Did that for eight years before I came back to printmaking. So I I and I don't know why it took me so long. Maybe it was just lack of confidence in myself, or maybe it was because I just thought I this isn't I can't do this as a job. I just how am I gonna make a living doing this? So Yeah. 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 So even even growing up with art, I just it didn't occur to me that I could do it as a profession. Yeah. And I think that's it's still a huge question. And I think one that is constantly evolving, because, of course, in the last decade, certainly last two decades, we've completely changed the way artists interact with the commercial world through being able to have your own websites, being able to have your own Instagrams. It's so interesting. So I think that we're in a time where we're still trying to figure out mm-hmm. can the average person, the average person who goes to art school does well, is there some kind of a life? You know, there's a tiny, tiny percentage of writers clearly who get very, very rich and famous. Mm-hmm. But most all artists I've ever spoken to just say, look, if I could just make and sell that work and have like a modest place to live and yeah. shop at Trader Joe's. Right. That would be my dream. I don't need more than that. 
Right. Well, totally. I mean, I think, and I think coming out of art school also, I felt like if I was trying to sell my work that it was somehow like beaten into me that if I was trying to sell my work, that my work maybe didn't have like the rigor behind it or it wasn't like, uh like and I don't know why that got into my head, but it was like, so that years later when I was trying to figure out how to bring income in from, I was going to make the work anyway. Like I might as well figure out how to bring income into it. And I, I remember feeling guilty about or awkward about opening an Etsy shop like way at the beginning. Sure, Yeah. And it's like, Oh, but you know what? Like I had the Etsy shop going and I can actually like, Oh, people are, buying my prints like but and then it's like why do I feel weird about that like it was a it took me a while to get through that and I'm like you know what like I, I feel like we need to talk more about like with I and maybe it is more in art schools and I'm just I haven't been there for a while but that you can do it yes you might like what you were saying like you might not be like a rock star but you can you can pay your bills and and shop at Trader Joe's and figure out your finances <laughs> and like, yeah, exactly. Like yeah, totally, that's, yeah. That's the whole other side to it, right? Is yeah. that there's the like, can I do it? And then that, am I sell quote unquote, like huge sell inverted commas yeah. selling out? Yes. You yeah. know, if I'm making something that people love, is it too populous? Is it not serious yeah. enough? Yeah. You know, if I'm making something that just sparks joy, Am I right. a real artist again? Right. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's all kinds of really interesting questions that I think in the end, it just has to be the individual maker, the individual artist who answers well, them because. Yeah. That's well, it. I just got to a point where I said, you know what? I love making what I make. And I, I guess, I mean, I'm 45 now and I got to the point where I'm like, I kind of don't give a, am I allowed to swear on here? I don't give mm-hmm. a shit. Like what people think, like I'm just, I'm going to make what I want to make and I'm happy if it like, I'm excited that it's selling. Like, that's great. And I'm not going to overthink the like, oh, is it too commercial or is it too colorful and cliche and whatever? Like, I, I'm making what I feel like I want to make, whether that's it's moving and it's motivating to me and I'm just going to make it. I love that. I think that's one of the greatest gifts of getting older <laughs> is all, all the shits that you drop along the way that you yeah. were giving. Yeah. It's just like... I don't like, know more. Yeah. Right? yeah. It's like when I say it to my kids now, I'm like, like what other people say about you is none of your business. I think, what is that? Eleanor Roosevelt or something. I'm like, okay, that's that. I need to hear that's that. That's a huge <laughs> one. That's a huge one. Yeah. What other people yeah. say, or I say like, whatever people think about me. Yeah. yeah. It's none of my business. <laughs> it's none of my business. Yeah. Well, and so in your story, when did you come to printmaking? Was that at Whitman? Was that in San Francisco? Was that before? Yeah, it was yeah, I I when I was in high school, I was obsessed with ceramics. So I was always mm. doing clay. I really like really intricate little tiny an- animals. It's always been animals. I would make teapots with animals and things like that. The like spouts coming out of alligator heads and things like that. And then I got into Whitman. I did not think I was going to major in art in studio art. I bounced around in different <laughs> subject areas. <laughs> But I always wanted to, I mean, I've been making art my whole life. I mean, that was, as a kid, like those were my after-school activities was I went to art classes and whatnot. And so, of course, I was taking, I wanted to take a studio art class my freshman year, but I couldn't get into ceramics, which is what I really wanted because all the upperclassmen were doing that. And I, and I, the only print, the only class I can get into in studio art was printmaking, was intro to printmaking. And so I took intro to printmaking and it just, it really stuck with me. And then 
I was there for a couple of years and then I transferred to the San Francisco Art Institute once I realized I just want to do art. And Whitman has an awesome studio art program, but I, I think I wanted to be in the city. Mm-hmm. Walla Walla, Washington is beautiful, but it's small and isolated and and it's yeah. all college life. So I, I transferred to San Francisco Art Institute and was one of five printmaking majors there when I got there. And yeah, printmaking stuck with me. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And so what about etching specifically? Was that something that quickly came out from the pack for you as as something yeah. that was going to be yours? Yeah. I think there's something about, I, I'm very, I like detail and mm-hmm. I, you know, what you can do with an etching needle, like, <laughs> you get really detailed with an etching needle. And then you could also get the painterly aspect of it with Aquatent. Like, you know, what I've been doing now is I mostly do, most of my work is like this, is like a step etch Aquatent with using the paintbrushes. I think like the critique I always got in, in art school where I was also, I was taking painting classes was stop using such a small brush. You know, you're never going to see your work if you can't make it faster, use a big brush. Uh And I, I, even to this day, like I've tried to like loosen up and make work, make work fast and use big brushes and, and have more to look at in terms of what I'm producing. But I still, I always go back to the etching needle and the little paintbrush and, and that's okay. And I just work slowly and maybe I'm seeing things slowly and my work is progressing slowly, but that's okay with me. Yeah, it's just, well, and it's I think it's a whole. Yeah, that's it, and and I, it is reminds me a bit of what we were talking about just earlier about the commercial side of things too, is that if yeah. they're trying to prepare you for that studio to gallery to collector pipeline, yeah, a lot of that can come from you need to make work quick. If you find something that sells, you need to be able to make more of it, yeah. and be a little art machine, which is a lot of what you're being asked to do sometimes. It means hiring sure. people or something. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I don't really know. But yeah, no, I, it's, yeah, work is slow. If I can't work, I can't really work faster unless I had someone helping me cut things up or something like that. But I'm, yeah. I'm not quite there yet and ready to do that yet. Well, so I feel like this is the perfect time to ask you about your current technique and yeah. what does that look like and what is that process like to create your images? Yeah, it's a little, it's like we're makers, we're all focused, so focused on process and I've kind of gone a little crazier with the process. <laughs> <laughs> process on top of process. So yeah, so I make, I was doing animals, now I'm tending to paint my animals. That's kind of a, that's kind of came out of the pandemic because I just couldn't, I met Kala, which another side note that because I know you've uh, interviewed a lot of Kala artists and worked with Kala, a lot of Kala we artists. love Kala in this yeah. house yeah. yeah but anyway so I make my etchings at Kala and they tend to be now they're they're plants so I make like large plant etchings usually one or two species on a plate and then instead of additioning them which I said earlier I will print multiples in all different colors on, I use, I don't want to say this incorrectly, abogami mingeshi paper, Mm -hmm. really thin paper. So I've been printing my etchings on there and then I let them dry and then I cut them out. So I'll cut the plants out of the, out of the etchings and then collage them together. And I use acrylic and I've been collaging on panel. So basically what has happened in my house is that I have flat files that are just full of different color plants Mm. and drawers and things like that yeah and I and I don't just stick to like the sometimes I'll make like silhouettes with them or I'll paint large 
areas that I'll cut silhouettes out of and kind of mix them together to kind of create my compositions that way. Totally. And when did you start working in this technique and how did you come to it? Yeah, I think, well, I've always kind of compartmentalized everything, which I think is also a printmaking mm-hmm. thing. Like you have to like think about all the all the different steps to get to the grand finale. When I, I when I was in and I when I was in art school, I was I kind of finished up my senior year of my BFA. I was making little etchings and I was kind of using them as stamps. And I would make like a little etching of a black bear and a little etching of dandelions and really tiny. And I was kind of I was inking them and then I was kind of using them as stamps and like printing them multiple times to kind of create um, a landscape that way. And I didn't make etchings for 10 years between graduating and when I started up again. And I kind of started off there again when I started making prints again. And then the plates just started getting bigger. And so I was having bigger plants. (laughs) And then I think it was just, it was also a product of being a working parent and that when I first started at Kala, I was only getting it on weekends because I had two young children. And so once they started going to elementary school, it was kind of a matter of what can I do with the time I have between childcare and, and family stuff going on. So it, I would make the etchings and I'd bring them home and I was like, what, well, what can I do while I'm home with these? And so I started cutting them up on my kitchen table and it just kind of evolved from there. Yeah. And, yeah. So, I mean, it is a product of, of being a parent and figuring out how to work, when to work. And, and uh, I, and this has been working for me. Yeah. Well, I, I've spoken to several parent printmakers who talk about how being a primary caregiver does put limitations on you, but the limitations yeah. also lead to creative solutions. They do. And so it's sort of yeah. like being squeezed and then you see where the energy comes out and it might be a path that you never would have taken otherwise. That you then are grateful to be on. And it also, it's like, there's no procrastination. It's like, I can't be like, I'm in the mood to make art now. It's like, there's no mood. It's like, I have this time. I am going to make myself work right now. And it's usually, it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put on a podcast. (laughs) Like I'm going to sit there for the whole time and I'm going to work and I'm going to, or books on tape or NPR. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a. Even if I don't want to, I'm going to make myself work. Totally. That's such an interesting point that, you know, you can't sit around and wait for inspiration either. Cause I think yeah. that that getting hung up on that is such an issue for a yeah. lot of creative folks is that I don't feel the spark and that can really stifle moving yeah. forward at all, which is some of the reason why I think doing things like portfolio exchanges and applying for group exhibitions and that sort of thing can really help because that's a, that's a way you can engineer in a deadline for yourself yes. to make yourself yeah. work because it really can be really hard. I know this from experience yeah. to feel like I'm, I'm not in the mood. So everything I'm going to do is going to be shit and I, it's going to be terrible. And then getting over that and realizing yeah, sometimes when you make yourself work, it is shit, but most of the time it's just the same. You just didn't feel like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I've also learned like when I'm like, in like I have, having trouble coming up with stuff. It's like, I feel like by making myself work, all of a sudden I get ideas. It's like, I'm getting the ideas while I'm doing it. Or like, it's always like, while I'm pulling prints at Kala, like I'll be like cranking stuff through the press and I'll be like, oh, I know what I'm going to do with this. Like I have you have to be making the work to see the work, to make the work, to get more ideas about where this work is going. Like it just, it's to, to move it forward. It's like just 
make yourself work. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm thinking too, having you describe that process that you have with the layering and the way things sort of find their way to fit together through the act of collage. It is sort of a nice metaphor, I think, for the subject matter as well, yeah. because you're so interested in animals and biodiversity and particularly mm -hmm. that balance. So I feel like there yeah. is a form and a function in what you're doing in the sense of this idea of finding these separate parts that together make a unified whole. Yeah. Well, I think I, I have, I mean, definitely the past couple of years, I've been trying to think more about like, well, what's actually allowed to belong to the landscape? And it's like I am, I'm building plant by plant. And then by reading about other things or hearing scientific studies about things that are coming out and I like what's allowed to belong to the landscape. And before I was so focused on, okay, I'm only going to work with native plants and animals. And then I'm like, well, but you know, I like the interaction between like dogs and cats in my neighborhood, or I have a really good friend who raises sheep. It's like my husband grew up on a farm that raised cows. It's like, Yes, like these things can be detrimental to the environment, but they are still part of our landscape and they are living things that people do love. So it's like, mm -hmm. how do you incorporate these things that, yes, are potentially harmful? They are harmful, <laughs> but they are part of joyful things within our landscape. That, well, they're joyful to humans. So yes, in the layering of the plants and building landscapes, it's kind of been like, okay, well, what can, what am I allowed to put in here? What am I not allowed to put in here? And then I think it was just this year, I'm like, why am I like limiting myself to what politically I want to be in here versus like what actually is there. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if political, political is the right word, but you know, what scientifically yeah. or ecolo ecologically is supposed to be there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think that's a really interesting idea to examine because at a certain point we can, we can know what was here before colonization and imperialism yeah. and settlers yeah. came and brought their invasive selves and their invasive right. species and their invasive yeah. plants and animals. And then also, I think, to look realistically at the irreversible harm that's been done, right. that like truly we can't take back Scotch broom. Right. I don't right. think Scotch, I don't think we're ever going to win against no. Scotch broom. <laughs> I think Scotch I try to pull is it up whenever stack. I see it, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yes. know. And then so recognizing the harm that's been done and not belittling it or glossing over it, right. but then also trying to say, okay, realistically, what can we do? Right. How do we how do we minimize the negative well, impact that these species are having? And I and I think so much about like we need agriculture, obviously, because we have to eat. But obviously there are ways, the organics movement, and you find ranchers that are figuring out ways to farm with the wild. And, and you know, that's my friend who raises sheep. She's very focused on, she has guard llamas to chase away predators instead of, and she's brought in ecologists to make sure that there are, the proper native plants are growing. Mm. Um, so there are people who are in those fields doing that. But, you know, when we look at you know, industrial farming, obviously, and the pesticides and all of that, it's... It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know what I, I totally just lost my train. train no, 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 no worries. No worries. <laughs> so yeah. So with, with, with your work, it's interesting to hear that kind of, that journey that you've been on a bit of really producing what it sounds like almost like an ideal world in which yeah. 
the plants and the animals are living in the harmony that they evolved to live in right over countless millennia yeah and then also there's the reality of 2023 california in which right. that's been deeply disrupted and so yeah. reflecting the the sort of the the truth i guess as well coming into your work yeah yeah well and i've tried to and i this is where i put myself into boxes where i'm like i have to do certain things a certain way but i've been trying to do like okay i'm going to i'm going to incorporate these other animals that and plants that we have that are part of colonization and whatnot, but I'm going to make them silhouettes instead of, instead of painting them more realistically. Mm. So like I've done that with cats. It's like, of course, like we think about, you know, I'm a dog person, so I know I'm going to get, and I know a lot of cat people. <laughs> My mother-in-law has Cat Whisperer as her Facebook, her employment is she's Cat Whisperer. But you know, it's like cats kill 5 billion songbirds native songbirds a year mm -hmm. and you know they, they've just been showing things like the their poop is causing like taxoplasma to sea otters in california like it's like it's like so we like things that people love like people love their cats but you know it's, we have to put a bell on your cat if it's an outdoor free-ranging cat or dispose of cat litter differently so that it's not mm -hmm. getting into our oceans and making sea oh otters which is just crazy to me that they we've gotten to this level where cat poop is making sea otters. <laughs> but, but I think Poland just labeled cats as like alien invasive species, like, cause, <sighs> because they do a lot of environmental harm. Um, obviously it's like cows horrible on, on public lands. Obviously that's, but you know, I've been finding, and it's sort of an, like, I listened to podcasts and whatnot about environmental issues. And there was this interesting story that came out while I was getting ready for my Wally Workman show about how, the donkeys in Death Valley National Park. This was something that I thought was not what you would expect. But so there are donkeys in Death Valley National Park that were left from miners. They were like burrows that ran away from miners and kind of they are now they're wild donkeys. I think they're all over the Southwest. But scientists have gone in there and realized that they've actually been helping mountain lion populations. So, mm. so there's all these, it's like we think about, obviously like scientists can do great things like reintroduce wolves to Yellowstone and create this trophic cascade to help ecological systems. But now they're also seeing these little things like the burrows in Death Valley National Park are actually helping mountain lion populations. And that in some places, the burrows are digging in the ground in ways that are bringing, helping bring moisture up so that plants that have been having trouble growing because of climate change and lack of water and whatnot, are actually able to take root there because the burrows are digging holes there that are... So there's, I mean, it's it's complicated. And obviously I'm not an ecologist. I can't <laughs> really say too much about it. But but those types of things, you know, I it inspires my work and it makes me want to make images of things like that. But but yeah, it's complicated. So <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think often sort of counterintuitive too. Yeah. Like when humans decided that it was a good idea to eradicate wolves from Yellowstone. I'm sure at the time it felt right. this is, this would be great because what do they do? They, they kill livestock and that hurts people's livelihoods and, right. and they're dangerous yeah. and all this stuff. And, and then, but at that time we had no idea how important they right. were. And then something invasive, like a, like a, like a donkey can actually help <laughs> things. And, you know, you, I think some of it you hear, sometimes really horrific stories about people really missing the mark and maybe like culling like a whole mass of elephants because they think that they're pulling up, that they're sort of creating erosion 
and they think yeah. that they have to do this to to save the whole environment, but really. Ten years later, more accurate research shows that they save. Yeah, they were helping. Yeah, they were actually helping. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's this sort of thing where I think often humans are like, "Well, we've really interfered with this. Perhaps more <laughs> interference is the solution." Right. Right. Oh, right. <laughs> not yes. so much. Not so much. Yeah. 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 So when you're when you're making the work and you know you're you're showing the the plants, the animals, and and how they move together and and have that balance with each other you know they're also the the end object that you make they're they're quite beautiful because they do have animals and plants in them and i feel like yeah. that is i don't know i'd be hard pressed to think of any visual subject matter that is more associated with with just beauty i mean it's yeah. our our Tzu caves right like the very first things humans decided to make was plants and animals. So in terms of your audience and how they're perceiving it, what's that balance for you around kind of figuring out if somebody sees it and they just see it for something pretty and they want it and they totally miss the mark? Is that an issue for you? Do you feel like maybe you need to be more heavy handed with the complexities that you're trying to show? Or what is that like for you as the maker? Yeah, that's definitely a battle for me. When I when I was just making the work that was just, I'm just going to make, here's a California landscape with coyotes and native plants. And it wasn't really saying anything other than coyotes and you know, irises and whatnot. <laughs> uh-huh. And it was just pretty. Yeah. And people would buy and it was pretty. And now that, and I, and I don't know if maybe I'm not saying it hard enough, but now I'm, I'm putting in these images of the silhouetted cats behind the birds and whatnot. And to me, I'm obviously thinking about cats or I've seen cats kill birds in my front yeah. yard. <laughs> you know, it's like, so I'm thinking about that. And obviously it just looks like a funny image of cats with birds when <laughs> they're, so yeah, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I, it's, I, I think about that and I don't know, while there is a lot of thought behind how I'm making the work, I know it's not coming out in the finished pieces and that's something that I obviously want to work on more. And I guess, and when I was getting ready for my Wally Workman show and they had me record you know, I'm like, okay, I can talk about it. And then people know, but I'm like, but it's still, I, I, I know I, w- I want the work to speak for itself, but it maybe it's not doing that yet. And that is, mm-hmm. that's, that's just part of the process. And I don't know if I'll ever get there or I, I, I'm definitely like a cheerful like person. And I, I don't know if it comes natural for me to make, make my work darker, which mm-hmm. in, in content, which I am thinking about things that are pretty dark, but I am still making bright and colorful pieces. So I don't know. I don't know what I, how my work will change in that way. And, and it, it, when it will, and it's like, it's funny. Cause when I look at my work, even like three years ago, how much it changes over time, mm. maybe to my eye, maybe not to other people's <laughs> eyes, but I think, okay, it, it is, where is it going with this? And yeah, it, will I be able to communicate that better in, in future pieces? Well, and, and I think there's, I feel like it's true for like almost every artist practice though, that like so much is hidden. You know, yeah. and whether that's in the physical process, which of course gets hidden 
like so much in printmaking. You know, you you, you look at a, a lithograph and, you know, you're not seeing drawing and etching and re-etching and sponging and right. all of the stuff that goes into it. Same with an intaglio etching, you know, you're you don't see the hours of of the sitting there, you said with the needle. Yeah. And then also a lot of the intellectual heavy lifting that goes into a piece. I think so it's, you're certainly like not alone in any way as (laughs) an artist who has so much hidden that doesn't necessarily show up fully in a finished piece. And I think sometimes when work does show up sort of fully in a finished piece is to the detriment of the end composition because then it's too heavy handed. We don't like that real obviousness. So it's, right. I think one of the, in terms of communication and particularly advocacy that art can do, part of its power does come in through the back door of perception. And yeah, that that we tend to think of work that's very direct as unsophisticated. And so, so yeah. much work as artists is to sort of find a way to kind of, kind of be clever about it all, it seems like. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm always curious when I listen to artists and their their stories and their life stories, I'm always curious about the things that they did that necessarily weren't maybe directly related to art, but were still a big part of their life and maybe how that sort of informed what they do. So you had mentioned at the top of the hour about taking these like eight, nine years off and being yeah. a special ed teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, if you don't mind, I'd love to just kind of circle back a little bit to that and see how did that affect you as a person and then affect your art outcome and your decision to return to art and all of that, because everything that we do and we experience, it ends up in our art in one way or another, I think. You know, it's really funny because I was kind of doing with my students well, I got what I, I should say. I got lucky in that when I first started teaching, I got a job. I was a, a special day class teacher, which is I had worked with students with learning disabilities. And I was a really large, I was at a really large high school in East Los Angeles where we had a cohort of about 120 freshmen with learning disabilities. And so, but they still, because there were so many of them, we could have individualized teachers. So we had a special day class English teacher, a special day class history teacher, and I did special day science and math. And so what was great about that is that I was able to incorporate a lot of visual. I mean, I know all the kids learn differently, some visual learners and, and, and what's the word I'm looking for? Ah, People who learn better from hearing and whatnot. So I think teaching science, obviously, and ecology was one of the subject areas I had to, had to cover. So I had the kids doing kind of similar to what I actually do in my art and that we would, they would each pick an ecosystem to study or, you know, the biome and they had to find a specific area and, and draw the plants, you know, they would pick five plants that live there and draw them and animals. So we incorporated a lot of art into making. And, you know, I think I th- science just definitely like, <laughs> there's a lot of art things you can do with science, like building molecules with marshmallows and, <laughs> and, and even the chemistry of it. Although I, I, I didn't have a real science lab. I was in like an outdoor, one of the, what do they call them? Where they extend these school campuses and they put the, what are the, the, like the, 
I can't think of the word for them. Like these out, like these cubicles out, kind of outside. The yeah, school. the trailers almost. Yes, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah this is what I. Yeah. My high school was under construction the whole time I was there, so yeah. all my classes were in these <laughs> these double wides out in a field. Yeah. So I was in a classroom kind of like that, and I was teaching science. I and because it was a special day class, I only had twelve kids per period, which is for working in Los Angeles Unified School District is a really small class. But one of during our chemistry lessons, I didn't have a real science lab. And one of the other science teachers who was teaching the general population had given me this great experiment to do with the kids where you do obviously the baking soda vinegar, fill up a balloon with the gas. But he showed me in his lab how to do it with, and this was very, this is very etching based with sulfuric, I think it was sulfuric acid or hydrochloric acid and zinc. (laughs) And it gives off hydrogen gas. And so you, you trap it under the balloon and then you get a yardstick and you put a you light, have one of the kids light a match at the end of the yardstick. And because the balloon is filled with hydrogen gas, it gives off this huge. So I, I did that as my first year as a teacher. And I think I caused a little bit of a panic. (laughs) Is this essentially you're remaking the, the Hindenburg disaster? Is that what this is? Yeah. I didn't. So I, I, we did it with my students and obviously in a science lab, they have like the correct, materials to use it but in my classroom we were I had like one beaker and we were kind of improvising and I thank goodness we actually we brought it outside to to light but it was I think I I didn't get the chemistry quite right and there was quite a lot of hydrogen produced so (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty dramatic Uh, but the kids liked it so that was fun and and then of course I I mean (laughs) that would have been the highlight of my science class I can tell you that But that, I mean, it was just, it was, it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed teaching. And then it was you know, poorly planned, but that's just, I, we weren't, my husband and I just weren't really thinking about it. It's like when I've been teaching for, I guess, seven and a half years. And when my second child was born, we realized that when I went back to work on my teacher salary, that I was going to have to pay to work because of child care. teacher salaries. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So. It was like we were trying to figure things out and it was, so I stayed home for a year and then I applied for a residency at Kala and it just, it happened. It just kind of, mm-hmm. we, we made it work. I would go in, I would go in Saturday. My kids, because they, one of them was a baby, would wake up at five in the morning. And so I would go into Kala on a Saturday morning at five and so my husband would stay home with the kids on the weekends and I would work at Kala and then he's a carpenter. So he would do the regular schedules and Monday through Friday. So yeah. Yeah. yeah we tag teamed it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just it's like childcare in San Francisco. We were in San Francisco at the time. Childcare in San Francisco just it was it was it I mean it still is. It's not it's not affordable. It's just Yeah, I mean I I I don't reckon it's gotten better. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, that's I, I know quite a few two parent households who are returning to the model of one person working full time yeah. and one person staying home because of childcare. And as you say, yeah. it it's, and, and because of how low so many salaries are, yeah, it, it just doesn't keep up. And so either you break even or you actually end up paying more. <laughs> Lose, we're losing money. If I go back to work. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So Anyway, that's that's a whole nother mess, but <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'd, I'd love for you to talk about the concept of rewilding 
and kind of how it shows up in your work. Cause I've, I've always loved that idea and you know, what it means kind of ecologically and then what it means for you when you're creating an image with that energy about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would sort of going back to like the whole wolves and Yellowstone thing, obviously that's part of the rewilding movement. And I think that's the one most people recognize, you know, how reintroducing wolves created kind of this trophic cascade of that they could keep elk populations under control, which will stop eating as many of the, the willows. So it brings back beavers and whatnot. So, but I think what people also don't think about is that it also, it's, it's top down, but it's also bottom up starting mm-hmm. with plants and that certain insects are dependent on very specific plants. So I think most people think of monarchs and milkweed, like yep. you have to, like, if, if we don't have milkweed, we don't have monarchs. And, but, you know, there's obviously lots of other species that are also very dependent on in the Bay Area. Like, for example, there's mission butterfly, which is only uses a very specific type of lupin. So, mm. so in, in order, oh, that's my, that's my <laughs> cuckoo clock that goes off on the half. That's not a cat. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I think I was kind of thinking about that. I I had been reading a lot about the idea of decolonizing the garden and that, you know, we have all these beautiful tulips and daffodils and things like that, that people tend to put in their garden, but that if we actually plant in our gardens, like native plants, that, that we can help, even if it's just a flower pot on your city balcony of a native plant that you can be helping pollinators, which kind of goes back up the food chain. So it's all connected. It's kind of funny. My husband's from Ireland. He grew up on a farm there. And I, I think we didn't really, we were very, like, we're very focused on like that when our kids are old enough, we're eventually going to, they're when they finish high school, because they just want to stay with their friends, but we want to go back there. And his father has started rewilding part of the farm. He's still raising mm-hmm. cattle, but he's started putting in native Irish trees in certain areas and pulling out weeds where the cattle aren't and blocking them off so the cows don't get in there. And and, and he's already started seeing like there's there's a fox that he hadn't seen foxes in a while. So mm-hmm. he's been seeing foxes and rabbits are coming back that he just hadn't seen um, in a while and otters, which surprised me. So we always had this like idea of, okay, we're going to go back to Ireland and we're going to rewild the family farm. And then we started thinking about like, well, why aren't we doing it? Yeah. Well, wait, yeah. in California, like why do we have daffodils coming up right now? Why do we have like, they're, they're not California plants and we could be helping out by pulling them up and planting Clarkia and other things that, that are beautiful and will grow without and are drought resistant and, and, and we can help our local wildlife. Yeah. If yeah. people are interested in doing that, is there a particular resource you recommend or just popping into Google like native plant Santa Fe, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, I mean, that's, I I have my love hate with social media, but I think there's, I follow California Native Plant Society on Instagram and they their website is full of ideas of, you know, here's a, a shade garden and here's a, you know, these are things that are going to bloom this time of year. Here are edibles that you can grow that are, mm. so there, I'm sure it's probably, it's would be regional. And there's a, I think there's an Irish activist, Mary Reynolds, who has a really wonderful book called We Are the Ark about how we can, in small ways, help ecosystems. Obviously it needs to happen at the top for all the big change to happen. But, you know, if we can do little things here and there to help our local wildlife. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that that can be something that really gets lost is the little things that we can do and, and, you know, climate change and the collapse of these ancient systems in nature can feel so overwhelming and and disheartening. But I think it is important that it's top down for us as well in the sense of voting and electing people who can make policies that support. Yeah. And large corporations need to clean up their act. I mean, I think people talk about how people use social media to pass blame and judgment on us individuals are like, Oh, you didn't do your recycling correctly or you're not driving an electric car or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or like, why don't you ride your bike more? It's like, no, like, yes, those, of course we need to be doing those things too, but don't get on your neighbor about it. Like, get on the corporations and the government about it. So mm-hmm. yeah. I'm a little bit of both. <laughs> both. Exactly. So like yeah. it's top down and it's bottom up. Cause like we're, we're yeah. a system as well. That's affected by everything. Yes. And yeah. so, yeah, we, we need to recycle and, and plant indigenous plants if we can and do all of that kind of stuff. But also I think something that can get lost a little bit in that and well is that individual responsibility is often corollary to privilege in the sense of having time, having money to go to your store and buy buy plants, buy organic, (laughs) having a yard, you know, I mean, alone is, is a huge, is a huge privilege and a, and a sign of, of having access to a house, which of course, like so many people don't. So it's, I think as we've spoken to before, it is, it is complicated and it's something that in the end, like many things, you need to just focus on what you can control, what you do have control over, being like, okay, like, did I vote? Did I do these things that I can? And then you have to let go of the rest because it'll, it will, it will drive you to wailing and gnashing your teeth if you think about it too much. Yeah. 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 Mm. Definitely. And I, I have hope in the next generation Obviously, we need to be doing our gender like now, but I just hearing my kids and they are already very in talking about political issues and getting involved and and know they need to at an early age. And obviously, environmentally and everything else going on in this country right now is scary for them. You know, the gun debate is scary for them as kids and mm-hmm. um, and yeah, that's yeah. That I just I'm hopeful. I'm trying to stay hopeful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we all are. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of hopeful things, do you have anything you're looking forward to? Anything on the horizon that is exciting and yeah, brightening your day a little bit? I, I'm just coming down off my Wally Workman show. So I was going to say, I know like, that's a loaded question after an exhibition. So yeah, yeah. like so, I'm definitely like I'm coming down off that. I'm working on a large commission right now, which is kind of like sucking all of my mental energy. I'm actually looking forward to it being done so that yeah. I can have my my brain back. Because <laughs> I think I'm just kind of just cranking, trying to finish this commission, which I'm excited. It's, it's love-hate with commission. It's like, I obviously, I love that I have a commission because I financially need it. But it's of it's it's work, I guess. It's, yeah, it's yeah, work. yeah. Commissions are uh, for someone else. I'm sorry, a whole thing. Yeah, 
Yeah, there's like a little extra edge of like nerves about it when it's like, oh, is this going to be okay? Is this what they want? Versus <laughs> I'm just making what I want. It's like, so it has that, that that's, it's making me a little anxious. So I'm looking forward to it being done so that Great. I can work on my next art things that I want to make. <laughs> Yeah. And then where can people find you online and follow you and, and see your work? I'm on Instagram at Julia underscore Lucy, L-U-C-E-Y, and julialucy.com, although I have to say I can't figure out how to get back in to edit my website. So <laughs> the last time, I mean, it was, I think I updated it like six months ago and then the the internet provider or the web hosting provider changed something and now I can't edit it anymore. So I'll figure that out. But, but there's <laughs> but something there. Really, yeah. yeah. There's something there. There's something there. There's work. My A lot of the pieces from my Wally Workman show are up there. So yeah. And then yeah, Wally Workman Gallery has my work in Kala Art Institute in Berkeley and Visions West Contemporary in Denver and Bozeman. Cool. Also carry my work. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Julia, for, for sitting down and chatting with me and for the work that you're doing and just sharing your practice with us this afternoon. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. And thank you so much for spreading printmaking across the world. Podcast world. Yes. Cool. I really enjoyed it. If you liked today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be, well, me. In celebration of our 200th episode, my co-host Ronaldo and I sat down to chat about the legacy thus far of our podcast, our plans for the future, my worst fears and fondest dreams. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.